0: You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Hsieh, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. Hey, this is Victor Hsieh. I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year, and I'm also the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, can you give us a brief introduction about who you are?
1: Sure, but when you're as old as I am, brief is harder to do. Uh, I am not the youngest Biden delegate, but I am proud to be a Biden delegate, especially today. And we'll talk about that more with our very special guest. I'm also the author of The Watergate Girl, a book I hope you will all read and enjoy because it's about a time when democracy worked and justice prevailed and an era when all of the people of my gender were called girls. Now, hopefully they will be called vice president. Um, So that's my background. Uh, Of course, I was a Watergate prosecutor and an organized crime prosecutor and general counsel of the army, deputy attorney general of Illinois, and um, head of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools.
0: Yeah, as always, we wanna thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. Um, To support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics, please consider rating and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcast platforms. On our show today, we are joined by the one, the only Kathy Griffin, who really needs no introduction, but she is a two-time Grammy and Emmy award-winning comedian and also a trailblazer for women in comedy. We have an interesting lineup of topics to talk about, including cancel culture, the importance of the uh, First Amendment, the polarizing political culture that we now live in, ways in which my generation and other generations can better engage in dialogue without shutting opposing viewpoints down, and even getting into some of Kathy's thoughts on Kanye West running for president. and most recently Kamala Harris being elected as the official nominee for vice president on the Joe Biden ticket. So Kathy, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to be with us today. We are so appreciative and really look forward to it.
2: What schedule? All right, we're all quarantined. (laughs) There's no schedule. We're all in it to win it. I'm so excited to be here though on this seminal important day when Kamala Harris has been just announced as the VP pick. And um, uh, it's just, it's just great. And my inner feminist, my inner female comedian girl comic is just rejoicing. And of course my plug is please watch my film, Kathy Griffin, (laughs) a hell of a story written and produced by me, a girl, and it's available on Amazon or Apple. and, And it's all about my Trump scandal. And hopefully you'll laugh a lot as well.
1: And we will list that on our website as well, the link to it, so that everyone can join in watching what I know will be an amazing, amazing film, because we have an amazing, amazing gift. And I want to personally thank you, Kathy, for Mm -hmm. being here. As I said to you, when we first uh, connected on Twitter, I can't believe I'm actually talking to you, and that I actually got to meet you in person. And uh, that was one of the most exciting moments of my life. I actually got to meet your now husband and your doggies and see your house and to find out that your neighbor is Kanye West. So (laughs) we'll talk about that at some point, but um, this is a special day. So let's go a little bit more into your enthusiasm and excitement for the Biden-Harris team. Um, I changed pins as soon as I heard the announcement because as everybody knows, I'm known for my Jill's pins And hopefully, uh, Victor can get a close up of this at some point. It's a beautiful pair. And it, of course, stands for what I think is a perfect pair, Harris and Biden. And it's so exciting to have the first black woman on a major party ticket ever. And so, uh, Kathy, tell me what you think about it. I mean, other than just being excited and knowing that, we have this wonderful candidate who's extremely qualified to be the vice president and to, if heaven forbid, necessary, take over as president. Um, Anything else you want to say about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, Um, you know, I, I was, I was Victor, feel free to laugh at me at at any time. I actually was crying today and, you know, I, I'm hoping that, you know, first of all, I'm so proud of you both for being delegates. That's such a dream and an accomplishment. And I just love you guys are doing the show. And I think it's all about the generations connecting and finding out what we have in common, which is, which is so much. So, uh, you know, obviously my whole life and the lives of women before I, um, Anyway, uh, we've, we've always just thought it, thought it was a fait accompli that a, a woman would be elected president. And um, ever since I was a little girl, I've wondered why it, was, it took so long. And um, not that I'm like besties with Hillary Clinton, but the last time I saw Secretary Clinton, you know, I, I, uh, it was when she was on the campaign trail. And, um, it, and I said, you know, this is just, this is such a long time in coming and, and she's so eminently qualified, et cetera. And I just remember her answer. She just goes, tell me about it. And I always remember that because I think, um, I think that Senator Harris is acutely aware of what the mantle that she is hopefully joyously Carrying So this is for equality everywhere. This is for women everywhere. This is for men who, guess what, think women are actually equal. This is for, you know, black and brown girls and black and brown boys and folks to watch a woman take, use her glorious ambition and take it all the way. And, you know, it is a really fantastic pair. I I really, um, I I will laugh and I will do a lot of comedy about the opposition. And Trump has already put out some ridiculous video that I haven't been able to stomach quite yet, but you know, because I'm a comedy soldier, I'll do it for my country at some point. So I, I just want us to really bask in this moment and enjoy it. And when the incoming comes in, not if, but when, we're really imminently prepared, you know? So they're going to have to make stuff up about her. And in this age of misinformation, disinformation, which I can speak to because I've really been um, uh, the uh, survivor of a lot of it, everything from people going online, you know, saying that I'm a member of ISIS to I drink baby's blood in a basement with Huma Abedin and Tom Hanks, Uh, (laughs) You know, this is the internet world we live in. And because of coronavirus, we are home more and we are taking in more. So, you know, I think that we're actually getting a little educated ourselves on how to fight this insanity and this information. So misinformation. So I'm, I'm glad that we have a, a, a prosecutor of all people. So uh, it's always good to see a female attorney, much less, of course, Jill, your accomplishments. And here she is, uh, she was the Attorney General of the state of California. And, um, you know, I, I really think she's kind of just what the doctor ordered. And I'm so excited because um, I think a lot of folks on the right, they kind of were successful, unfortunately, in convincing a lot of Americans that. Either Hillary Clinton or a female candidate at all just wasn't able to energize the base or energize Americans. And just a few hours into this announcement, I feel that excitement that was indisputable when Barack Obama won the nomination. And there's something about, I'm not feeling the most optimistic about Americans at this moment. You know, we're not going, we're not having our finest days, in my opinion. And yet, I think that people inherently like the idea of making history when it's the right thing. And this is, this is um, a position which time is so long in coming that I, I think that will be a real difficult thing for the Trump campaign, how to fight the fact that people do like to make history. They do deep down know it's the right thing. They know she's qualified. They know Joe Biden is qualified. And you know, let's face it, he's no spring chicken, I'm 60 myself, November 4th, and you know, kind of like a pageant, in the event he's not able to carry out his duties, I think we feel that we're in good hands. And that's no disrespect to him at all, but let's face it, it's a big deal. I mean, people are talking about Sarah Palin a lot, you know as if but John McCain chose her for a reason and she was young and attractive and not so smart and yet now we have this woman who crosses all the right boxes and she's not just a female she is a woman who can lead this country and I, I heard one of the commentators saying that they felt that um Vice President Biden was looking for someone to co-govern with and I think that's what we want to hear you know so uh hopefully we'll, we'll be able to usher in an era away from Mike Pence where Perhaps there could be a situation that is a pair. I know that's how I'm going to be voting. I'm actually voting for both of them, not just Vice President Biden. I
1: I think you are so right on everything you said, although I want to point out that I have been honored to meet uh, Vice President Biden in person. And he is so energetic and so um, his posture and his movement is so graceful. He does not at all seem his age. He seems really energized and wonderful. Um, And I think that they will be a very, very good pair. The the one thing also that I wanna add is of course, the standards for judging a woman seem to be completely different than if Biden had been considering male vice presidential candidates. And the comment about her being too ambitious Any man who was accused of being too ambitious would have laughed at it because ambition in a man is considered a good thing. And it should be in a woman who's your vice presidential candidate as well. You certainly don't want a woman who isn't ambitious. So, but let's get to the topics that we
2: really... Well, I, may really I be mean indulgent? Like. Um, Victor, sure. wait, some, you have some light on your face. Yeah, I have It looks I have like you're, s- you're being interrogated, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, yeah. if, if Vice President Harris wants to do that, that's her choice. No, but I'm curious, Victor, I, because you're such a young man, what? when's the first time that you heard about Senator Harris? And I'm just curious, how did you hear about her initially?
0: So the first time I heard about her was in 2016, when she was running to become a um, senator in the um, U.S. Senate. And um, I remember she resonated with me because um, she's Asian American. As an Indian American, um, I sort of connected with kind of those like Asian American roots. And it was really funny because today, um, one of my close friends, one of my best friends, um, she just graduated Georgetown and she's Jamaican American and she's also black American, just like Kamala Harris. And she wasn't the biggest supporter of Joe Biden, but once she heard about this news, she was like, like she was working and she was like, I, I literally stopped my conference call and I was like, like partying. And she was like, this was the happiest moment that I, have felt since 2016, so uh, I know for so many just Black Americans, um, Black American women, and also Jamaican Americans and Indian Americans that this is um, you know the kind of representation that they've all been hoping for, and it's just so exciting.
1: Now, keep in mind, Victor would have been about 13 at the time. So, just to show you how sophisticated he is, he was following politics back then. He was elected as a delegate when he was 17. He's now 18 but the election was, he was still only 17. So um, he's an extraordinary character and we'll be seeing more of Victor in the future of our political lives for sure. But anyway, um, let's go back to, not so far off of 2016 to 2017, when um, you had a particular run in, um, in a joking manner, you held up a mask of, President Trump's face, Mm. and you had covered it with ketchup. Mm -hmm. To me, it was absolutely clear that it was a reference to President Trump's denigration of Megyn Kelly, uh, when he said to her, uh, you know, blood coming out of
2: her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever.
1: Exactly. And so that was pretty obvious. But it didn't work out that way in your life. Um, You had some very major fallout from it. You got fired from CNN. You had, uh, you were blacklisted basically. Um, Some very serious things happened. So let's talk about that because to me that was in a way the start of the um, cancel culture, the start of not having the true freedom of speech that I think we need in a democracy. So if you can make sure that everyone knows, and of course they can watch your movie to see even more details of it, but just give some little bit so they understand how horrible what happened to you was for this joke.
2: Well, sure, thank you. Um, I took a photo and, um, you know, I decided to make what I call a statement photo because, you know, you know, I, I have such strong feelings and I've I've been a political junkie my whole life, but primarily my career had been kind of making fun of celebrities. So I think for some people, this was me, me not being in my lane, but in my real life, it was very much in my lane. I've also known Donald for decades. So all the years that I was at NBC and NBC universal, which owns Bravo. And I worked at NBC for many years. I met him when he was on an episode of a television show. I was on in the nineties called suddenly Susan. And he was such a buffoon from the day I met him. And I just kept running into him because this guy would show up at the opening of an envelope and I would see him at NBC Universal events and press events and Bravo events. And he always showed up when he was doing The Apprentice. And I had friends that were on The Apprentice and I participated in two of the challenges on The Apprentice. One with my dear departed beloved Joan Rivers, who I would of course do anything for. And another one I did at the now infamous Bedminster. And it was uh, one of those challenges where the cast would have to put on a show. So the Donald called me to be the comedian hosting, and he actually asked me to roast him. And he was such a baby about it. And so he always (laughs) wants all these people watching. So I remember we were at his golf club and the performer was Liza Minnelli. So I'm not gonna turn down that gig. You know, I mean, who cares about the Donald? And I remember walking toward him and he was with his golf buddies and some whores. I mean, ladies who make a living. And, uh, and him saying, oh, don't be too hard on the hair. Like this, making the sign like I'm the devil, right? Don't be too hard on the hair. And I'm like, honey, that's, those jokes are so low-hanging fruit. I'm gonna get those out of the way first and then I'm gonna go for you. And it was such, you know, my run-ins with him have been so bizarre because he's so, I call it aggressively stupid. He's not just stupid. He has no interest in learning anything. He gets weird notions into his head. One time I was seated next to him at this, um, once again, it was it was a uh, roast of Larry King, okay? Larry King, the talk show host. And right. I was still with Donald for four hours. Oh my gosh, four hours I will never get back. And on the other side of me was the comedian Gilbert Gottfried. And I've never been so happy to spend time with Gilbert Gottfried and no disrespect to Gilbert. But Donald would just, he would either say nothing or be looking around the room, trying to be photographed with just anybody that would have a photograph with him. And um, I remember being a little embarrassed to be next to him, but I didn't know any of this stuff. Like, I didn't know about the racial stuff. I just knew he was a cartoon, you know, and he was easy to make fun of because he's always been orange and stupid and been happy to be around celebrities of any kind. So this notion that, um, you know, he he sort of adopts the phrase uh, or steals the phrase Hollywood elite is the group he has been dying to be in his whole life, you know? And he's just, just that sort of pathetic guy. And I think when he was on that show, we thought, well, he's this failed real estate tycoon. But you know, he's got some buildings named after him. And in Hollywood, that's kind of good enough. And um, he was someone that honestly, whenever I would run into him, I would just kind of give him some crap and make fun of him. And he didn't really listen, it would go right over his um, nest. And, <laughs> you know, he was honestly when I would run into him over the years, he seemed like a harmless figure. And, you know, I get to use all those experiences now in my act because for, you know, what's funny is when he, when he ran, when he famously went down the elevator, which the, I'm sorry, the escalator, which to me really sort of started the end of the Republic. Um, you know, I, I thought, gosh, I've had these Donald Trump stories for decades, but nobody ever came to my shows. And said, oh, I hope she talked about Donald Trump. So when I started making fun of him, I had these personal experiences with him and I was able to publicly bust him in a way that he couldn't dispute because it was either a real conversation I had with him or we were photographed together or there were witnesses or it was right there on tape. And um, I, I kind of couldn't believe that he was successful in really bamboozling anybody because I didn't really see him get away with that at NBC. I mean, they kind of lauded him a little bit because he would get ratings for a while, but people forget that show ended when the ratings fell. And you know, I knew he had a vicious streak because um, when it failed, Martha Stewart took over And then he just completely went for her, which was so bizarre, because I think he had an executive producer credit. And yet he was so insane and run with his bizarre ego based on nothing. I don't really know what his skill set is. I don't really know what his talent is. He's no, he's no reader. Um, He's not funny. He's not engaging. He's not smart. He just, you know, Mark Burnett just kind of built him a little bit for that show. Well, I guess he built him entirely actually for that show. And that's another one, Mark Burnett. Yikes. So, you know, this is, a, he was running with a bad crowd. Jeff Zucker was running the network. I mean, yikes. It's like Land of the Losers. But it's a bunch of middle aged white guys that could fool a bunch of people some of the time being in the right place. And I've always found that sort of funny. And that's what I like to rip the veil off. So when so, it came time. Let's to go my,
1: back to the picture. Yeah. So, so when, when it came when, time, when you did the photo shoot, what were you thinking? How did you get the mask? And you know, what were you thinking about Megyn Kelly? Or was there something else in your mind?
2: I was briefly thinking about Megyn Kelly, but you know, screw her, she wouldn't piss on me if I were on fire. But I still as a woman, I didn't like him saying that about any woman, you know, blood coming out of her wherever. So that was the immediate, you know, um, sort of inspiration. And it was I think, I think I said to my assistant at the time, can you go to like a Halloween store and get a mask and a few sort of props, you know, and the whole thing just, you know, it was just a few moments of inspiration, if you will. And we took the photo, not thinking anybody would pay attention to it. I had taken a whole other photo shoot. And then the photographer, for some reason, gave or sold the photos to TMZ. So that's when I really had my first exposure to what I call the Trump boy shipper. So when I wanted to take such an extreme photo, because you know, when you're a comedian and you've been a comic as much as I have, and for so long, I've done 23 televised stand-up comedy specials, I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, you get to a point in your work, in your art, if I may, where you go, you know, I'm gonna make a statement as well. I can make people laugh, but also there's something about this guy that's really beyond the pale. I've never heard someone running for office talk about women in this way. And and I know where this goes. I've dealt with sexism and misogyny my whole life. And, you know, equal pay is something that I don't think I'll see in my lifetime. Certainly not in stand-up comedy. I mean, God love these women that make 80 cents on the dollar. When you're a stand up, it's about a nickel on the dollar. And so it's a, it's been a passionate, you know, topic of mine. But the way he treats women in his actions and his words is so extreme that I thought I wanna make an extreme statement about him. So I could have softballed it and you know, I could have made a hair joke or a joke about him being orange. And I just thought, you know, this one's different. And I I don't know, like I, I just knew that it was really, really bad. And knowing a lot of shallow, stupid television personalities, as I do, I thought, yeah, I've seen these guys when they start to believe their own press or in his case, make it up. So I did want to do something really, really bold. So I knew it was bold, but I never could have imagined what would happen when his team got a hold of the photo and was able to manipulate it, change it, turn it into a meme, et cetera, and then in, you know, what I now know, because. I'll tell you about the investigation later, but um, I now know that that photo was manipulated globally with the help of everyone from Cambridge Analytica to the GRU to Facebook and all the social media companies. And it went global within 12 hours. And uh, they were able to convince millions and millions, maybe tens of millions of people, certainly in America, that I was a member of ISIS, of ISIS, you know, because they're recruiting a lot of Irish American middle-aged women. and. You know it was funny for about two seconds until it wasn't and that was my first taste of oh my gosh this is this is what americans can be convinced of very quickly online and uh it
1: also i mean there were some real serious consequences because if I remember correctly, the FBI came to see you, you were threatened with charges of assassinating the president.
2: Well, I was, I was investigated. So I will say I'm actually in the history books. Um, I was the first ever, um, American citizen, much less female comedian to actually be investigated by two federal agencies. So I was investigated by the secret service and the U S attorney's office. And they were ready to, as you know, the U S attorney's office, right. they were ready to, uh, Charged me with the crime of conspiracy to assassinate the President of the United States, which holds a lifetime sentence. so the first fallout was was more of a PR fallout. you know, I was on the ticker on all the news channels, and uh, CNN fired me very quickly, and I didn't hear from anyone from CNN. I read it on the ticker, and I started getting phone calls from people saying they they couldn't be associated with me anymore. Um, the online stuff and uh, there were whole uh, cable news shows sort of not even really debating the photo, but just saying this woman has to go and, and this is so inappropriate. And this was like the beginning of Trump's inappropriateness is an understatement as we now know. Um, but I, I have to say that in all my years in the business, even I was kind of surprised that no one really had my back, not in the arts, not in the world of politics, mm. nobody. I mean, nobody. So everybody turned on me left, right and center. And that was painful because You know, I I, I thought the folks on the left would at least have a sense of humor or at least understand the First Amendment. I had, um, you know, I I think Alan Dershowitz actually falsely claimed that I had gone outside the bounds of the First Amendment, which you know is not the case at all. Uh, I got um, a call from my First Amendment attorney, who's very accomplished, Alan Eisenman, who won the landmark Supreme Court case, Jerry Falwell versus Hustler Magazine. Mm. Because, you know, uh, I've been doing this a long time. So when it comes to the First Amendment, I want the guy that won a Supreme Court case, even though Larry Flint was his client. And, um, you know, so he's the one who called me and told me about the investigation. And then certainly all of Hollywood and all of my, as I call them, buyers or check signers. And these are entities, anybody from CNN to NBC to Warner Brothers to small production companies to touring companies, I've earned millions, if not tens of beyond tens of millions of money uh, of dollars for these companies and to have them all turn on me. And if nothing else, I've been an earner, whether you like me or think I'm too polarizing. I've made a lot of money for these guys. And I say guys, because I also learned very quickly that unfortunately women were not able to help me Mm -hmm. because, and I I want your listeners and viewers to know that to this day, there is not a female executive that can single-handedly green light a project, not one. So mm-hmm. I don't care if you're Shonda Rhimes or the, all the great female showrunners and producers, you still have to kick it to the old white guy upstairs who's getting a lap dance on the you know, golf course and get their approval. So I learned so much going through this process, but the investigation was, was definitely intense. Um, I had to get 24-hour security. The death threats were uh, very immediate and they were very extreme and they continue to this day. I lived a very odd existence, which is while two federal agencies were investigating me on one hand, I still credit the FBI to this day for saving my life. And many times they would call me uh, and they would let me know of a threat. And there were three kinds they would let me know. There was one where they would call on the phone. There was another one where they would um, need to speak to me. And then there was another one where they would come over. And ironically, the day that I filmed the comedy Santa portion of Kathy Griffin held the story, uh, I got a new beginning for my stand-up set because the fed the FBI came over that day, and they told me about a new in imminent threat. And they read me the the letter to Warren. and um, they could be they could only be sort of vague about what the threat was and where it would happen, but there were many times that that happened. And to this day, um, when I get certain correspondence, they will be generous and go through it with me. And there's three piles. There's the pile that they just take because it's so serious. There's the pile that I call debatable. And then there's the pile that they're just like, oh, these guys are harmless psychos. So it's an ongoing thing. And, um, you know, I'm still blacklisted in Hollywood. I haven't worked since that photo. Um, I I financed this film myself, I'm very proud of it. I did a very successful global tour and um, United States tour because thank God there's one thing even the president can't stop and that's from people buying tickets. I was able to go overseas first because I couldn't get any work here. And luckily based on the success of the overseas tour, because guess what, I've never been more famous in my life, and I was able to play, you know, everywhere from Singapore to the Sydney Opera House to the, you know, uh, some of the great venues. To the Chicago Theater.
1: Music. You got yeah. to the Chicago Theater where I got to actually meet you in person.
2: So yeah, that was so great. And it was a
1: great show called Laugh Your Head Off, which is right. a nice pun on what had happened. Um, and if I remember correctly, Bill Maher also gave you a break and had you on television, so yeah. that put you back on television. And um, I, of course, I'm a big fan of his and a, a super fan of yours. So I was thrilled to see that. Um, and But you really suffered for, for this. And it's hard to imagine that any other president would have gone to these lengths. Um, no other
2: president has. And yeah. that's you know, that when I started to work on the film and even on the tour, I didn't want him to speak. So I met with some other attorneys, Boutros and that crowd, Katyal, and I said, if I'm going to go around saying that I'm the first person this has happened to, is that true? And they said, yes, it's never happened like this. Certainly Mm -hmm. going through with actual investigations. Also, I want to let your, your viewers and fans know I was also interrogated under oath. So it wasn't even a sort of intimidation campaign. I had to go through with the full investigation and the interrogation. And by the way, I do not fault any of those folks. They were doing their job, they were incredibly fair, but it's a very frightening thing when your attorney says, as he, as Alan said to me prior to that interrogation, I love you kid, but you screw this up and you're going away for life. And you know, we t- there was obviously a lot of prep and we did murder rooms and all that stuff. And, and I learned a lot. And so I sit here now proudly saying I know a hell of a lot more than I did then.
1: And did they give you your Miranda rights? Did they warn you? Yep. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I remember the only time I've ever had to give a Miranda warning to anyone was to Rosemary Woods, because in normal situations, it's the FBI that gives the warnings to any witness that I would be interviewing uh, long before I see them. And this was one of those times where the White House sort of threw her under the bus uh, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And then on Monday, I was... Had her in court as my witness, and no one from the FBI had been allowed to speak to her, so I had to do it. And I'm sure it's a lot more scary to be on your end of the warnings than it was on mine, but it was I felt like Perry Mason giving the warnings. <laughs> it was really amazing experience. So well, you know
2: hearing you say that it's it's actually shocking to me because she did she was not truthful under oath. And I would never, ever risk that. I mean, she I, I assumed that she knew what she was erasing and the reach and all that other stuff. But, um, you know, uh, I, I, I am, I am amazed at, at anyone that would falsify anything under oath. It's terrifying. And when you know that the consequence are that these charges would be filed and You know, anything that happened and under this administration. And I, let me tell you, Jeff Sessions was the, was the AG then and Bill Barr is even worse. So, yes. uh, you know, I, 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 I'm never a big fabricator to begin with. I may embellish my act a little, and we'll get to there when I talk about Kim and Kanye. But in real life, uh, I, I know it's very important to be truthful all the time. And I think that eventually, I ended up getting out of that situation, which shouldn't have really been a situation. Right. I was just exercising my First Amendment rights. But I ended up really coming out of that thing ultimately unscathed because I stuck to the truth the whole time and my story never changed. So it's interesting as I watch everything from Senate and uh, House hearings, to see folks lying under oath is astounding to me. So I think as a nation we also have to learn these things are not an anomaly anymore. And this isn't an uh, an incident where every few years we go through one of these things uh, like Iran-Contra, like Watergate. This is now the way that our cabinet members speak on a daily basis, and the you know uh, what happens in the press room and the president and and all of them. And I'm wondering what you guys think about why so many folks in the Trump camp have bought in to perjuring themselves. Um, I'm not even getting into the moral dilemma, but that's a frightening thing as someone who's been under oath. I'm not lying for anybody. I'm not taking the fall for anybody. Why do you guys think so many of them keep doing it?
1: I think some of them think that because they're in Congress, they have congressional immunity. Mm -hmm. I think some of them have just completely lost any sense of morality. I cannot explain Bill Barr who I believe is a real threat to democracy in ways, I mean, John Mitchell went to jail for his role as attorney general um, in Watergate and Barr is suffering no consequences. But, you know, we have a real First Amendment problem in our country right now. And you have people afraid to speak out the truth and to contradict Donald Trump because he holds people accountable in a way that Unfortunately, right now, the Department of Justice under Barr will not hold people accountable. And you know, I think that's one of the things that you focused on a little bit in your um, tour was the fragility of the First Amendment and our democracy, in my mind, depends on a free exchange of ideas, which is protected by the First Amendment. Um, so I don't know, do, do you feel like we are vulnerable right now because of what's going on in this regards?
2: More than vulnerable. I'm sure you're keeping um, tabs on what's happening in Minsk and the marches in Belarus. And you know, yeah. one of the things that, frankly, I just enjoy doing as an American is learning about all these other governments and what happens when they turn authoritarian. I know you're a fan of Sarah Kensier as well. And she writes a lot about uh, governments that go from democracy or the sort of democracy. Right. And a lot of Americans need to be watching what's going on in the Eastern Bloc countries. Um, Our our mutual friend Clint Watts, a former FBI uh, agent, talks a lot about how I I was not aware that Putin had tried all of the online disinformation on the Russians first, where they perfected it. And it was so easy and successful, and we were just sitting ducks for it. So... Uh, I, I think that, you know, we're also seeing the denigration, obviously, of freedom of assembly. And I, it, is, it is so discouraging to me to see electeds actually trying to debate what is and what isn't a peaceful protest. And, you know, Victor, you probably know this because I'm, I'm a middle-aged lady and I can find out in about an hour online exactly who the, quote, bad actors are. It's very easy. I mean, if you want to know who the looters are, they're the white ones. I mean, there is just tape after tape after tape. And they're often white supremacists. There are many, many um, uh, videotapes of officers that are supposed to be guarding the protesters that are making this sign, which is a white supremacist sign. Um, And, you know, it's very out in the open. So I'm having trouble reconciling uh, how we move forward this way when we're kind of not sure who the good guys and bad guys are. And yet, I don't want to be a pessimist because I do. I do have faith in human nature. I just think at this moment we need to really be good and diligent about getting fact-based information about that stuff because when people—that's probably come the with-
1: most important thing in this day and age of, yeah, you know, with social media being a source for people getting the news. Anybody can say anything, and if you're not careful where you're getting your news sources from, uh, you may be acting on totally false information.
0: Um, and do not use I, TMZ. That, that, I think that's the <laughs> one lesson from, do not use TMZ, for sure.
2: Well, by the way, TMZ is often cited as a tertiary or a secondary in, in actual news articles. When I see, like, the Los Angeles Times say, according to TMZ, I'm like, okay, let's see who's funding TMZ. Harvey Levin, what's his story? In bed with Donald Trump, always has been. You know, I didn't even know until recently that I guess Sean Hannity, he founded the Daily Caller or the Daily Stormer, one of the dailies. Uh, But, you know, I get a a lot of the folks that people believe online, they'll they'll make a masthead that looks somewhat legit. And then you'll see it's from the like patriotpress.com. That's always a red flag when they have something you know patriot or americafirst.com I'm like yeah that's not the New York Times well they're busy trying to tear down the New York Times and you know, uh, my brother worked for, for newspapers, and um, you know, uh, my my husband, I poached him from the LA Times, and I'm part of the problem, not the solution, apparently. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and he, he he used to work there, and now he's my tour manager. But uh, anyway, you know, I, I'm just a real fan of genuine news, and I don't know why people aren't. I mean, if if you want titillation, or you think if it bleeds, it leads. There's plenty of that in the legitimate news. So. I I feel within my own generation, I've seen folks go from wanting to hear the news and how it affects them in their daily lives. And that can be the local news with sports and weather and traffic, but they want to kind of know what's going on. And now they, people maybe don't want the news. They want someone who has an ideological similarity. And so they think Facebook groups are news. And then you learn that Facebook is taking money from far right groups. It's, It's all... It's so complicated, and yet at the end of the day, it's pretty simple, which is the old expression, you know? people would just remember, consider the source. Consider the source, but also take a second and look up the source before you jump on that bandwagon and decide to join the QAnons, who believe that I am on the flight log with Jeffrey Epstein.
1: (laughs) Well, all right, let's talk about the cancel culture for a bit, because to me, it started with you and the consequences of this photograph. Um, and Barry Weiss was just on, uh, who's a Harper's Magazine columnist, was recently on with Bill Maher for what I thought was a really thoroughly enlightening and provocative conversation on the cancel culture. And then there was a follow-up letter signed by Malcolm Gladwell, J.K. Rowling, and a group of other authors and journalists and academics, and. I I want to read you a part of it, because this goes back to my theory that we need to have diverse opinions expressed in order to have democracy. And so I'm going to read you from their letter. It said, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading most widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracization, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a binding, I'm sorry, in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter speech from all quarters. But it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. And you, of course, suffered the reprisals and you mentioned that there was no one there to stand up for you. you know, it's, it's sort of like, I don't know why the Me Too movement took Harvey Weinstein, why it didn't start with Donald Trump. I don't know why people didn't speak out and say, wait a minute. She did something so harmless. Why is this causing her to be investigated by the FBI to be put on a no flight list? This is silly. Um, but now people are starting to stand up and to talk about the need for opposing views and for free speech. Um, and so let's talk about what happened to you and the polarizing atmosphere that we live in right now, and whether you think there's a solution to this, how we can get around it, how can we have civil conversation with diverse views, Um, so let's just talk about that a little bit before Victor gets to some of his questions, and he has plenty of questions for you.
2: Well, I think the important thing is, right now, what's happening, Jill, and it wasn't even necessarily happening when my photo went live in 2017, is what's frightening to me is that there has to be one First Amendment. You know, you can't decide what the First Amendment needs. It, It was adjudicated in my case, it will be adjudicated forever, and that's great. However, what frightens me is hearing the president and far right groups try to co-opt the First Amendment. So for example, as as you and I both know, there's a difference between what I did holding up a mask and even if you thought it was a head, which I don't have a refrigerator full of heads, everybody, (laughs) um, but even if you did think that, um, that's weird. But um, that photo would have been covered and more than covered by the First Amendment. Why? It didn't cause any actions. There was no call to action. There was no specificity. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and now there's, there's a difference between what I did and yelling fire in a theater. Why? There's a very famous case of someone who yelled fire in a theater and people were trampled to death. So there were no consequences for my photo. There never would be. If you want to infer that there were consequences, then you're kind of you're kind of not really, you don't really know the actual boundaries of the First Amendment. So what I'm struggling with is I'm still arguing with people about how my photo was covered. And yet that doesn't mean that you can go to a protest in, in Portland and um, shoot someone because you've decided they're in a fictitious group called Antifa. So I think the solution is, you, before you um, say that you are against Antifa, you have to at least be smart enough to break down the compound word. I, Antifa means for I'm anti-fascism. So somehow the uh, right-wing woodchipper of disinformation has made uh, fascism cool again. I'm not sure of their point, but I don't think they would want to live in a fascistic country, although they may know sooner than later if we don't win this election. So that's the kind of thing that we're up against, which I've never experienced. I don't think this country has ever experienced it. Um, So if if you want to argue about the First Amendment, you have to read it. Um, I carry around the Constitution with me everywhere I go. It's in my purse. It's everywhere I go. And I I whip that thing out more than you would know, because a lot of people want to go toe to toe with me about the First Amendment. And yet they are um, they are happy to on the side of, if you will, the Karens and Chads, who will behave in a violent fashion to someone in a, you know, Costco, where not only are they putting the workers there in danger, and by the way, they have no feeling or empathy for the workers who are, you know, they're testing positive more than anyone, anyone, and, you know, uh, we're in a place where a few people are breaking the First Amendment by committing acts of violence, not even inferring that someone else should, but in, in committing them themselves. And and then the president says, that's their First Amendment right. So for example, the Black Lives Matter marches, you know, I think it's the most perfect phrase that Black Lives Matter, right? They're not saying Black lives are superior. Black lives are gonna take your jobs. Black Lives Matter. Everybody freaked out about that. The online online campaign started, maybe not based in this country, probably not. Then it started with, you know, White lives matter too. Then you've already missed the point. You know, blue lives matter. Hold on, they already have jobs. They're fine, they are in unions, you know? And so things get um, convoluted so quickly and easily. So I think our only way out is to slow down this news cycle, not be so reactive unless someone is doing something that not only violates the first amendment, but violates the second as well and the other amendments. And look at what those actions really do. So if my picture offended you, Okay, like you said, it's an exchange of ideas. I've been offended by things. I can't think of one, but I'm sure I've been offended by something, damn it. (laughs) You know, and an exchange of ideas is very different than people taking up arms. You know, um, there's a lot of marches for Breonna Taylor happening in Kentucky. And what a lot of people are getting away with, because there's just too many to police all of them, is a lot of folks are just going right online or looking into their local news camera, and they are not even, they don't even have a cape on anymore. There's not even a hood and a cape anymore. They're just saying, here are my 17 AK-47s. I will shoot the first protester I see. Um, I would argue that that is much more dangerous than what I did. I would argue that the local police would want to do what's called a door knock and maybe go visit that person and see if they're mentally ill or if their intentions are serious. And so the line has gotten too blurry. So I think the first thing we can do is just learn what these basic tenets are of our Constitution, what the amendments are, and why they are what they are. So if you look at the First Amendment, there's a ton of leeway in there, and everybody is covered. You know, you and I talked about how when I grew up in Chicago, which is where you are, and um, I was, I uh, grew up in Forest Park and Oak Park, one of the two of the burbs, and I remember what a big deal it was when the Nazis marched in Skokie. First of all, I remember that because it was, it was not a singular event, but damn near, meaning it was an event that captured the, the attention of the entire city. We debated about it prior to the march, and we liberals had to step down and go, this is, goes against everything we believe in. It's covered. These folks have a right, even though they chose Skokie. They could have marched anywhere, but they wanted to go to Skokie. And if you recall, the beauty of it, and this is why the First Amendment, as it is written, is really quite perfect. We don't need to mess with that anymore. A.G. Bard doesn't know what it is and doesn't care. He's trying to bend it to his crazy racist needs and desires and power grabs. But the thing that was great about that march that I recall so vividly is when those guys showed up and marched in Skokie, it was beautifully pitiful. It wasn't, there weren't thousands of them. If I recall, they were kind of so old farts, and yeah. a few people kind of stood on the sidewalk and kind of mocked him a little bit. Nobody shot anybody. There were no AK-47s. And we talked about it when they left. So we got to debate it going in. We got to debate it going out. And as much as it offends me, and you know, I was hoping not to see any distant relatives, You know, it was an event that happened in the way that is uncomfortable, but is covered. And so when you reference that article, yes, I don't mind the exchange of ideas at all. I mind the folks that don't understand that it's supposed to remain an idea that should be debated, and it shouldn't end up in you grabbing a firearm uh, and, you know, expressing these ideas, telling person after person what you're going to do, and then following through on it. That's not covered. And we can't decide what's, you know, what the First Amendment is, and we can't keep changing it. It is really quite perfect, in it's the form that it was written in. So I have a problem with people that will change the actual wording, which I've also seen on right-wing blogs, and then the people that believe Mm -hmm. it. And it's frustrating because all they have to do is a simple Google search to read the freaking thing. So I think if we can slow down this news cycle and get back to a place where we can have an exchange of ideas, but as you said earlier, they have to initially be based in fact. Otherwise, I don't really respect your idea. If you're just gonna make it up, if you really think that Hillary Clinton is eating baby blood in a pizza parlor (laughs) basement, You know, I I don't think we're going to have a very cerebral First Amendment discussion or maybe one at all. But what really frightens me is I didn't know all these other people were having these discussions. And then one guy actually did get a firearm and he did go to that pizza parlor and open uh, open fire. So there are people to this day that say he was defending his First Amendment rights. No, he was just a garden variety shooter like anybody else. That's just that's a felony. That's all that is. Is that the First Amendment? First Amendment is what you were talking about, people exchanging ideas, and they should be uncomfortable, because that's how we broaden our mind. And then when things kind of bubble up that are really, really dangerous, then we come around and we go, you know what, this is getting dangerous because it's leading to acts of violence, and it takes care of itself in that way, too.
1: I was on the board of the ACLU, and we had long discussions about, should we protect the right of Nazis to march? And I should point out that Skokie was a very Um, majority Jewish neighborhood. So it was specifically picked by the Nazis for that reason, as a threatening gesture. And you know, if you believe in the First Amendment, then you believe that the Nazis have the right to march in Skokie just as much as anything else. I think we're getting into some dangerous territory now. Um, You may not be aware, but Chicago has had a couple of nights of real looting violence on Michigan Avenue. And on State Street, stores have been burglarized, uh, windows broken, and people are just marching out with all these high-end goods. And it's based on social media misinformation, deliberate, probably, misinformation. This has nothing to do with protests. It has nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. It was a um, police-involved shooting of a 20-year-old, and then people started tweeting that the police killed a baby, which was completely untrue. And led to these horrible acts of violence, not by people protesting even the police involved shooting. These were clearly people who were bent on burglary. And they need to be treated as burglars, not as First Amendment protesters. So and the
2: tragic thing is, as you know, there could be completely righteous uh, marches happening yes. blocks away from Michigan Avenue, blocks away. Right. You've got the African American community going, wait a minute, we have been mobilizing and planning march after march after march and you guys screwed it up by, by looting Michigan Avenue and getting, you know, Lord and Taylor and, you know, uh, Williams and Sonoma and all that stuff. But exactly. that's where I, I say, as, as insidious as that is, it really just, it doesn't take that long to figure out who who the bad actors are. And it's hard convincing people that the bad actors are in the minority. But I do agree, they are organizing on social media, and they're they're criminalizing something as easy as you would organize any kind of bizarre thing on social media that is going to- They're diverting
1: attention from the real issue, which is police reform, for example. And that's a real shame. But I want to turn it over to Victor so that we can talk about from his perspective what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I just finished reading a book by Cindy Otis, I think her name is, but she's a CIA analyst and um, she kind of walks us through. It's a <laughs> guide to um, like de- uh, to detecting fake news and kind of how we can all um, detect fake news better and uh, like the Key issues she thinks is like um, at stake here is like just taking a moment and like pausing and thinking about the source, kind of like what you said, Kathy. Um, but I think for my generation, oftentimes you know we don't really um, want to spend time, you know, clicking through the sources or finding our information, um, which does become problematic in this um, in this moment for racial justice when you see um, sources out there kind of just not not true, and then young people just sort of believe that. I don't think that's um, beneficial for like the movement or, or our democracy.
2: Retweet. Right. Yeah. It's so easy to just hit that retweet button For sure. and sometimes, you know, if you see something and it sounds like the person's credible or if it touches you inside and it can touch anger or joy or anything, and then you hit that retweet or it's a Facebook group you join that stuff takes off. And what I'm, I'm trying to learn more about the algorithms because I'm in one. So I'm somebody mm-hmm. that if you even post, I mean, uh, you know, I dare you post something about me on, on your feeds and you will be flooded with bots saying that, you know, like I said, it used to be ISIS. Now it'll it'll say I'm, you know, I love when they have the Epstein flight log and it's just like an Excel spreadsheet that some dude made in his basement. And so, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I don't know how that works. Um, but we're in a place now where who knows is making up these algorithms and they are so far widespread and so many people believe them. It breaks my heart to see young people brought, like sort of scooped up into this quasi-fake world where I don't know how they discern, like, what is truthful and what isn't. How do you figure all this stuff out when you see the mountains of information that come at you every day online?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I I love to read um, credible news sources like the New York Times and um, other news sources, but I I just think that with the prevalency of social media and with, you know, all these sources kind of uh, flooding our social media feeds, I just, I think it's definitely beneficial to kind of just pause and look at the facts and then make a judgment from there. But um, now I just want to take this discussion on cancel culture and kind of make it relevant for my generation. Um, what I've seen in this moment for racial justice is this willingness to engage in real dialogue and conversation surrounding uh, race-related issues. Um, but at the same time, I've also witnessed some of my peers who, who may lean far right be shamed for their views, and some of my friends who identify as Democrats be shamed by the right. Um, how do you think my generation can more meaningfully engage in dialogue? and actually listen to each other um, instead of simply engaging in this cancel culture.
2: Get offline. You know, I know so many young people, no. but they're different people online. And you know, that's some, not something Jill and I went through. I mean, you yeah. you, ha- you kind of had to be the same person. I mean, maybe you could be a little different on the phone, but probably not. I mean, the people I was talking to in grade school on the phone were the same people I would then see in grade school. So right. there was no such thing as catfishing. You know, you weren't having <laughs> dual personalities unless you were watching the excellent um, Sally Field vehicle called Sybil. It was a big movie in the 70s when we had after school specials, Victor. Anyway, uh, <laughs> You know, that's something that I, I see and it once again it kind of breaks my heart because you know, when social media began and even online communication began, I thought, well, this is great if, if I mean I'm not a shy person, as you can tell, but I can <laughs> understand if you're someone that is not particularly bella coast like I am, or you're shy, here's a way for you to kind of think a minute when you put something in writing and maybe you have a little more confidence or you know, uh, I, I think the way that it started was was fine. And yet it's morphed into um, this notion where people, maybe not even knowingly, almost have multiple personalities on different platforms. So on Instagram, you're a little bit more naughty. And Facebook, you're a little more clickish. On Twitter, you can be a little bit more bold. You can delete tweet. And it must be really confusing. So I'm not sure how you convince a generation to kind of simplify and slow things down. But what I find troubling is, I watch, you know, I watch um, all kinds of news programs and I, I watch local news sometimes too, although I call it the stupid news because they seem to just take everything at face value. Anyway, like in Los Angeles, every time they say officer-involved shooting, I'm like, cut the crap. Who's the dead person who didn't have a weapon and who's the alive person with a weapon? But that's me. Anyway, um, you know, and they were <laughs> doing an interview and I think it was UC Irvine and they had, you know, these young people and they were multi-culti and I thought, okay, this is great. This is the, you know, footprint of today's America. and. I don't think they interviewed one person who said they were going to vote. Not one. And they were all on their phones. And I thought, oh my gosh, take ten minutes and just learn who the candidates are and learn the importance of voting down ballot because it's excited to get. It, it's great to get excited about the presidential, but frankly, the down ballot are probably the ones who are gonna affect whether or not you make a living, whether or not you get governance, government support if you need it or not. Certainly response to COVID, response to Black Lives Matter, response to defunding police. If you wanna defund the police, you have to know that that means you're not bankrupting the police. That means you have to take five seconds to learn where your city's budget goes and vote for the people that you think will do that. And you know, it was kind of astonishing to me because I thought, oh my gosh, When I was that age, we, you know, I had the Dewey Decimal System at the library, you know, we didn't have like the (laughs) world on our phone and all this actual information. Mm -hmm. And yet I I don't really know why folks choose to only use their powers for evil and not good. But that's something that I I don't know the answer to, but to me it's, we gotta be close. You know, the young people are so used to looking up anything and everything on their phone and learning all kinds of new systems at rapid pace. You know, I mean, lightning speed, and yet for some reason there seems to be a disconnect maybe it's they think it's okay boomer i don't know maybe they think it's old-fashioned or something but the information is right there so you know it's it's kind of like you know if, if you're a and you date a guy at some point you have to go you know what that time you spend doing video games you could be doing this and yet it's kind of true you know so that's that's one thing that i i wish i could kind of figure out i'd love to go and speak in high schools and colleges and ask that question which is if you're gonna spend time online, body shaming each other, then spend a few minutes and learn about the stuff that actually is gonna achieve and help you accomplish the stuff that will help you. You know, you don't wanna vote for a county sheriff who's, who has racist leanings. You know, you don't wanna spend all this time marching, but then people get reelected because they're incumbent. So that's kind of the the disconnect that I feel like the dark forces are liking. You know, the people that wanna keep us stupid, current administration. And yet, you know, it's right there at our finger fingertips. So. I'm always trying to figure out a way like, how can people get excited about learning real stuff? And they can be selfish about it. They can go, well, I want to learn real stuff because I want to know who to vote for. And I want to know, you know, who is legit and who's full of it and stuff like that. And yet there's something so attractive about that immediate gratification of send and next and delete and cancel.
1: Well, but oh, that's a yeah. great answer. And the only thing I would add to it is while you're reading news articles online, go to the original document. So when they say that someone was indicted, read the indictment. Don't just take someone else's interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course you have, in in your case, Kathy, you just said you're on a flight log that's a made up document. So it's possible that documents will be posted that are totally phony. But -hmm. a lot of times you should think about, does that seem too odd to be true? Because sometimes your common sense will tell you That's not believable. And we've all fallen for it on social media where I've read something and went, wow, that's so good. I love it. And I'll retweet it and then I'll go, whoa, 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 wait, that was so good. It probably isn't true. And I'll do a little more research and it turns out invariably that it isn't true. Mm -hmm. So we all have to be careful to make sure we're getting credible information from credible sources that Mm -hmm. have been vetted, not from some person who is just, mouthing off on social they have media. An agenda. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Just not taking
0: things at face value. I think that's a lesson with all of the fake news that's spreading around the country right now. Um, so one of the last questions before we get into like the rapid fire questions at the end is um, you've obviously had plenty of experience dealing with Donald Trump his, um, and also the GOP's criticism and their bulliness. And, um, but you've rebounded and are now stronger than ever before. Um, based on your experience, is there anything you'd want young people to know as they confront this highly charged, um, divisive political atmosphere that, they, that may be filled with criticism from all sides? And if um, me and my peers do face criticism and hardships, how do we rise stronger like um, you did?
2: dive into the fantastic journey of learning as much as you can about it. I mean, I, I didn't go to college. I've always been very self-conscious about that. I don't know state capitals, and yet I gave a speech at Oxford a year ago about the First Amendment. And I have made it a really fun career almost of learning about all this stuff. And so as someone who was probably prior to this spending most of my time on celebrity pop culture stuff, it's very fun, but it's like junk food. You know, you're know, you hungry an hour later or you feel sick an hour later. And yet this stuff, I mean, having relationships, like being able to talk to you guys is frankly something I would have been asked to do in my old life. And I love it. And I think when you are in tune with what's really going on and learning more. Number one, you can educate others. And you can say if they think you're just passing on your ideology, you can say, here's the source, make your own decision. But also you you get to open the door to a whole nother group of people, a whole nother group of information. And in this world where we're online more certainly during the quarantine, when we don't feel so connected to real life people, I've had at least more I mean, prior to quarantine, more you know, in-person experiences with folks that are just so fascinating to me. And I'm somebody that really did go many, many years with kind of the same group of people and doing comedy about kind of the same topics and you know, mixing them up in the blender as much as I could. And it's great to live a life where I feel like there's kind of more meat on the bone and to be exposed to people that are a new group of people. It reminds me of like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to always want to move to a different school where I could like not be homely and I could be, you know, a different person. And I feel like I'm actually getting to kind of do that now. So I would say when something like this happens, embrace the stuff you can learn from it. So whether it's you're a kid and you're being bullied online, try to kind of, You know, as they say, like, put the haters away, but then go, how did this all start? What's the genesis of bullying online? Oh, some of these online companies participate. Who's funding these companies? What can I learn about Jack Dorsey? You know, you kind of open yourself up to a whole new world. And I think that's what's leading to a lot of people being so uh, engaged in the world of activism. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I I am very encouraged by, is I'm encouraged by how many young people are are out there marching. And um, I think it's great that it's a generation of people that they don't have to be classified as lazy millennials anymore. And whatever the age is, if you're pretty much younger than me, you're probably smarter, you're getting out there and you're in tune with what's really happening so i think that there's a little bit of a revolution going out with younger people i'm just witnessing this i can't speak for you but i think i'm witnessing a generation of people that are a little bit ready to get somewhat offline and they're ready to get offline and into the streets offline and really talk to one another whether that's facetime or just on the phone but talk to like a real human being and it's way harder to be cancelled in real life than online so my my sort of a unsolicited advice would be get offline and get more into the real world and understand they are separate. They are separate. You can have an online life and that's fine, but let's not be a bad episode of Catfish, shall we?
0: Yes, for sure. Um, I know for me, like once this quarantine started, um, I definitely stopped texting a lot, and now there have been plenty of like the uh, Zoom calls like this, but I think it's it's different over Zoom, but I think it's there's still some sort of connection that's just so much different than texting and being on your phone all day and being um, glued to your screen, but I think Zoom is kind of maybe the first step to maybe achieving those like in-person connections that um, I agree. Once we're, yeah. Also,
2: I kind of agree with the theory. I don't know if it's true, but it sounds true, which is that the reason the George Floyd tape has been so impactful is because people were, had a minute to be in front of their screens, using them for good, not evil, and see something that maybe a lot of folks didn't quite know the details of, or how horrible it was, or see someone that would have been a statistic and a number become a human being, Overnight. So I'm not anti-technology at all. I think you're right about Zoom. I think it's actually far better than texting. or talking on the phone because you're sort of accountable. You're watching someone's facial expressions and you're seeing if they're listening or, you know, uh, making lunch on the side or on their phone while you're talking. And I think anything you can do to get back to real interaction with real life human beings is a good thing.
0: For sure. Okay, so to end this discussion, um, we have a bit of some, you know, rapid fire questions. So how would you describe Donald Trump in a couple of sentences? You kind of touched upon this um, earlier, but if you had to describe him in like two sentences, how would you do it?
2: Uh, Aggressively stupid, um, narcissistic sociopath, and um, just, he's just like a garden variety felon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. And I um, actually just finished reading uh, Mary Trump's book on Donald Trump, and I Echoes the same sentiments, how he just cares about himself and um those who are around him just allow him to do that because they fear that they might be fired for doing for speaking out and raising their voice. Um it's
2: staggering to me. I don't know how any of those yeah. folks do tonight, but I guess they do. And we have to marginalize them because prior to this, I would say folks like that, they were called like, you know, fringe, fringe right. members of society for a reason. We had to keep them on the fringe. Now they're in the main, they're in the main carpet.
0: Yeah, it's frightening for sure. Um, Okay, so what role do comedians have in helping elect Joe Biden? Or is there any role you think for yourself and other comedians to play?
2: I think there's an important role. Comedians have always done this. I mean, I kind of took the fall for something comedians have always done, which is, you know, one thing comedians can do while making you laugh hopefully is shine the light on stuff that is true. So, there's certainly a lot to shame about Donald Trump. And I think it's important that comedians do that. For example, I would say Tina Fey had a real impact on the reception of Sarah Palin. Mm -hmm. And all she would do was quote Sarah Palin's actual interviews. And it was such an effective mirror to show people, wow, we can't let this woman hold office. It's a historic moment as we're talking about now, but it's not her. We're not that desperate. You know, I wanted a female vice president sooner, but not her. You know, there's got to be better choices. And so I think there's a lot of effective ways that comedians historically have and will continue to shine a light on the good things about another candidate, even if we're kind of lovingly making fun of them. But more importantly, the dangerous things that are happening, especially in this current administration, because there's so much to keep track of. Sometimes it's nice to have a comedian kind of pick a few things and shine the light on them and you can watch them together and you can gasp and laugh a little bit.
0: I think Sarah Cooper is one of the ones that I've seen a lot on social media. It's just brilliant, her, her acts. Um, okay, so the last question that I have for you is Jill had told me that you live right next to Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Um, now that he's running for president, what are your thoughts on Kanye West running for president?
2: Well, you know, let me, let me just say this about that. Um, I like him. don't hate me. I like her, she's a sweet girl. Not the sharpest tool in the box, but not trying to be. And she's a brand, not a person. There are really more brands over there in Calabasas. Uh, and, um, you know, I saw her, they don't live next door to me anymore, but um, they, we lived next door to each other for about a year or two. And it was always great because they were always doing something fascinating to me or there was always something going on over there. Or, you know, I'd invite her over or go over. And if Kanye was there, it was always, um, he's not a talker. Anyway, uh and you know i I was teasing her one time when i saw her in the in the driveway and i said um i just go what the hell is your you got to stop the husband from going to trump tower you can't be going over there don't you know how crazy the Donald is and she said this thing that honestly rocked me she goes uh he uh he wasn't in his right mind and i and i go you know and she goes yeah i go oh we didn't know you know he's not in his right mind So that was, obviously, that was a while ago. It was the first time he went to Trump Tower. So, um, you know, I I don't think Kanye has any concept of, you know, him being folded into the uh, campaign that's going on by the Trump campaign. I I think he sort of likes Trump, but doesn't really know what he likes about him. I will say this, he's never voted. He's admitted this. He admitted it Mm. on the David Letterman Netflix show. It is on camera. He has never, ever voted. So there you go. I mean, it, it's, it's um, it, I, I don't even quite, once again, if you're a Kanye fan, that's great. If you wanna buy the shoes, have at it. Um, but at least take another second and just be like, what is his voting record? Because when people run for office, their voting record is public. So he doesn't have a voting record. So that is something that, for example, if you're a Kanye fan, you might wanna go, well, do I really wanna follow some guy to the White House who's never voted? So uh, that would be kind of my my main argument. Other than that, um, you know, I I I, like anybody else. I see the tapes of him melting down, and I I I, I've actually taken him out of my act for a while because there's I like to punch down, meaning I like to make fun of somebody. Where I'm sorry, I I got that wrong. I like to punch up, so I like to make fun of somebody who's doing leaps and bounds better than I ever could. So my joke is, you know, I've made fun of Ryan Seacrest for many years. He's fine. I've made fun of Oprah for many years, she's fine. Um, but I, I, think, I think the Kanye situation is different. Now the Kardashians are still on the table because those ones are counting their billions. And then Kylie with the makeup kit and that she's a billionaire with a B and Kim is only a millionaire with an M, that's all fair game.
0: Oh my God, well, I had such a fun time and I'm sure Jill did too, but we wanna just thank you so much for coming on this show and taking some time to talk with us. Oh, my pleasure. I love you guys.
2: Thank you. This is great. It
1: was fabulous. And we can't thank you enough. We hope we'll see more of you and that we won't see much of Kanye because I don't want um, him diverting votes from Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think he'll take any from Trump, but maybe, maybe. Uh, I
2: just, I don't think that, and I never thought I'd say this, and I'm just going to say it. I don't want Kanye West to be this year's Jill Stein. That's the world we live in. That would be so
1: terrifying, and yeah, yeah, I mean, we we must we must get out the vote. That's what Mm -hmm. this comes down to, plain and simple. And um, if Kappa Alpha Kappa Alpha Kappa is going to help us get out the vote because of uh, Harris being the VP nominee. You go, girls. That's all
0: I can say. By any so. means necessary.
2: Mm-hmm. I love it.
1: Exactly. Sure. exactly. Well, any legal means. Let's. Yes, uh, <laughs> you're In <right>. this environment, <laughs> we have to be careful about that.
0: We hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you'd like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.